I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with attorney Peter Halperin of the law firm Passage LLP about recent trends involving cyber insurance and ransomware attacks. So, Peter, I understand that there have been some recent critical court rulings in cases involving ransomware attacks, the payment of ransoms in Bitcoin, and whether insurance policies cover these payments. Please tell us a bit about the significance of these rulings, especially as cautionary tales for companies potentially facing their own ransomware incidents. Ransomware is an issue that is permeating all businesses and all sectors. And as an insurance coverage attorney, I tend to work with companies who are facing kind of the, whatever the latest and and greatest risks are. And, And over the last year or so, that has absolutely been ransomware. I think we've seen an explosion of it as a result of COVID, people working from home, cyber hygiene perhaps not being uh, as clean as it normally is in the office environment. You know, you've got babies and dogs and spouses and friends and all kinds of other things that are, that are distracting you. But I think in particular, because of all of that, we're starting to see as a result of more and more incidences of ransomware, more and more ransomware claims. And for a while, as the cyber insurance market was developing, it seemed as though, for the most part, claims were being dealt with without much issue or or much dispute. But over the last year or so, as we've seen this spike, um, we've also seen a spike in claims. And we've also seen, I would say, a spike in disputes. And so one of the things that my clients are asking me are kind of, what is our insurance going to do for us? And how can our insurance help us? And I'd say the number one most important thing is to look at your insurance broadly. Number one, cyber insurance, absolutely, you know, and most obviously will have coverages like cyber extortion or other things like that that will cover you know, ransomware payments and also breach response services and other services that may be ancillary to, to the attack, you know, business interruption, things of that nature. But other sources may also be valued. And so uh, what I mean by that is crime insurance and property insurance have also seen claims, but more significantly, they've also seen litigation. So Marion, as, as you're alluding to, and, and this is a long-winded way of me getting back to it. Um, We recently had a decision out of the Supreme Court of Indiana in a case called G&G Oil. Um, And what happened there was the policyholders sought to obtain coverage for ransomware payments. So not the destruction of their systems as a result of ransomware or the corruption of their data as a result of ransomware, but actually ransomware payments. And if I recall, that number in total was something like $35,000. They certainly spent a lot more than $35,000 litigating it because uh, the case went from the trial court level, trial court held that there was no coverage under a crime policy, under a computer fraud coverage for ransomware. But then as it made its way to the intermediate appellate court, which found the same way, it then was appealed all the way up to Indiana's highest court, Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court actually held that, no, no, that's, that's wrong. That's not the case. In fact, there may be coverage under these policies because there is a sufficient nexus to a fraud and it is sufficiently direct to trigger coverage. And also that it it was not a a quote unquote voluntary payment in the same way that if someone holds a gun to your head and says, give me all your money and you give them your money, that is not voluntary, right? So I think the takeaway from the decision is you want to look broadly at other policies, including crime and property to see if you have insurance coverage for risks associated with ransomware.
So, Peter, with that said, do entities need to specifically buy cyber insurance policies to ensure that if they have a ransomware attack, there will be some sort of coverage? And if an entity has an attack and they have some sort of other crime-related insurance, I guess it sounds like it might not necessarily cover ransomware? I don't think I'd I'd take it that way. I I think the way I would take it is ransomware is a problem. And ransomware is a problem for which, number one, you want to spend money on network infrastructure and and architecture and security. Um, But assuming that a hacker or a group could penetrate your defenses, which is increasingly likely, as as we see every day, no matter how good those defenses may be, you want to have that bottom line protection. And so, yes, cyber insurance is an obvious place to start, and generally it includes express coverage for ransomware. But, you know, policies come in different shapes and forms and add-ons and so on. And so I think the most important takeaway is to get the most explicit and express coverage vis-a-vis ransomware. So, Peter, in the wake of ransomware attacks, are the decisions to pay or not to pay a ransom being driven mostly by a victim's insurer? And what are the insurers weighing most heavily in terms of deciding whether or not a client should pay a ransom? I would actually say no. I mean, in in most instances where my clients have cyber insurance and the cyber insurer has said, go ahead and pay the ransom, we will cover that. They've said, but it's up to you. So it's really a, a client driven decision. And I think some of that too is that There are risks associated with these kinds of payments, such as with OFAC or DFS, the New York Department of Financial Services, OFAC being the Department of the Treasury. There are risks that you make a payment and you could be liable under various regulatory regimes, particularly as it relates to sanctions, right? Because the idea is some of these ransomware actors could be uh, connected to non-state actor terrorist groups or state actors that are you know, otherwise sanctioned by the U.S. government. So you really have to be careful in making the decision to pay. And Peter, you mentioned OFAC. How are those regulations influencing decisions involving the recovery path that organizations do take following a ransomware attack? Because you might not know necessarily who the attacker is affiliated with when you're sort of faced with that decision, what to do. It's a really, really tough decision. I think generally as a, as a lawyer, I should say this, you know, number one, uh, entities should contact law enforcement and be in touch with law enforcement. Generally, lawyers and law enforcement will tell you not, not to pay. Uh, as you said, it's hard to do attribution. I know there are some third-party tools out there, like there's something called, uh, I think it's anchain.ai that I, I recently saw, and, and I, I don't work for them. I'm not connected to them. But you know, it's an example of a tool that people are using to try to trace payments so they can at least have some understanding of whether or not, you know, what the OFAC risk is. But that being said, you know, not, nothing is a perfect solution. There's always risk there. And I think that the scariest part of it is OFAC enforces strict liability meaning you can't bury your head in the sand and say, oh, I didn't know. The ostrich approach uh, will not work. And Peter, what about war exclusions in insurance policies? How do they fit into the coverage that we see with cyber attacks? It's a great question. And and I think the the lawyerly answer is, you know, it depends, right? As the French say, c'est dépense. The concept is this, you know, generally insurance does not cover certain things. One of those things being a war. So if you have a factory and you have a property insurance policy and there's a flood, that's covered. You know, if it's a hailstorm, it's a hurricane, that's covered. But if someone bombs that factory in in the midst of a shooting war, the insurers do not cover that in the same way. 
that kind of exclusion, which is fairly standard and has fairly standard language, also comes up in, in cyber and other policies. And the concern, and there were, there were two cases, I believe about two years ago, one involving Mondelez and one involving Merck, both arising out of NotPetya. And what we saw with, with those entities, they had cyber claims, although I believe that actually they were not under cyber policies. So that's an important distinction cyber claims under non-cyber policies. However, the war exclusion was invoked and the, the concept was that NotPetya was driven by potentially by state actors and therefore because there was some attribution to state actors that it was almost a form of, of war as in a shooting war and should be seen as no differently. So for a while, I think there was kind of a collective freakout amongst those in the cyber insurance space on, on both sides of the aisle, both the insurer side and, and my side representing policyholders about war exclusions and whether or not insurers would invoke those to avoid making payments for ransomware or, or other cyber claims because of relations to Iran or Russia or, or um, China or some other nation that might be connected to a hacker collective or something like that. I think for the most part, the market has tried to calm people's nerves and say, no, that's not the way that we're viewing it. You know, war needs to be viewed narrowly more akin to a shooting war, not so much kind of a cyber war without attribution. But I will say this, my advice, as with my earlier advice about ransomware, you need to get the best, most express and explicit coverage out there. And when it comes to exclusionary language like the war exclusion, you need to carefully scrutinize that exclusion, working with your broker and other professionals. I think for CISOs, it's really important that they're in the room where it happens, they're in the middle of the conversations for cyber insurance, because if it's something that's solely viewed as a financial function within an organization, there are things that they are going to miss. So I think it's really important for CISOs to be involved. But specifically, when you're thinking about the language, you really want to make sure that even if there is a war exclusion in a policy, and it's very hard to say that there shouldn't be any, that there's some kind of carve out for, and you see this sometimes phrased as cyber terrorism or non-attributable cyber action. So, so long as it's not Russia did this, you know, if it's a shadowy group that's potentially connected with Russia, you still have coverage. So really, really important there to scrutinize the language, but also to make sure that CISOs and that, you know, security professionals in a company are involved in the insurance buying process and giving their feedback on the coverage, on the policy, and also what the risks are to the organization. So, Peter, with that said, what sort of advice would you have for companies in you know, the so-called critical infrastructure sort of sectors, whether it's a colonial pipeline type of energy company or you know, a big healthcare provider or you know, a pharmaceutical supplier in the healthcare sector or any other critical infrastructure sort of industry, do they have to be particularly careful about looking at their cyber coverage, being that, you know, you could have an attack that could be perceived as an attack on the nation's critical infrastructure, looking to disrupt, you know, sort of the pipeline and the supply chain of these industries? Yes, absolutely. I think everyone's at risk. I mean, I think that Early on, when it came to cyber insurance, you know, a lot of businesses said, I'm too small, I'm too insignificant, no one's going to come after me, I'm not a critical target. You know, and then other companies said, we're too big, you know, we, we've got robust security, we're not worried, we can defend ourselves. 
And I think everyone's come to the conclusion that we're all vulnerable and there is no panacea. And, you know, you've seen hacks on some of the most sophisticated and important security organizations, both inside and outside of government. So I think everyone's vulnerable. But when it comes to critical infrastructure, um, we've definitely seen a targeting of those industries. We've had some scary near misses, right? I mean, there there was reports, I think, in Florida, a water treatment plant and in um, Vermont a few years ago with a power plant. So we know that these industries and obviously Colonial Pipeline are, are in the crosshairs. And so, yes, they need to be careful about their war language. But I think the other thing they need to think about, too, is consequential damages relating to those businesses. And so what I mean by that is generally, if you have cyber coverage, there may be business interruption coverage. And that's that's good. That's helpful. That helps the business. But what I'd be more concerned about is kind of if someone was successful in one of these attacks, would the company have coverage for the follow-on effects? So if a dam burst because uh, someone messed with the plant, if the the factory exploded because someone messed with the heating and cooling systems in the factory, and, and then the next step being, okay, people got hurt, people died, there was environmental degradation, there was property damage to neighboring properties. So do you have cyber coverage, not only for that initial primary effect, but also the consequential effects that follow? And that would be something I think for critical infrastructure in particular to be prepared for and and to be thinking about robustly. I just add one other thing on that about insurance buying generally, which is, and for the technical folks, this may not be something that they're they're in the room for. And that's why I keep saying, get in the room and, and try to be part of that dialogue. It's critical to have the right team in place, both to deal with, you know, these kinds of incidences, but also to be prepared in your insurance buying, and also your dealing with claims after they happen. You know, it's it's better for you all to be front and center. And I think, you know, it's important in, in that vein too, as part of your breach response plan, as part of any kind of incident response plan, as part of any contingency planning that you have, I think it's important for CISOs to be well aware of whatever in insurance infrastructure or insurance assets may come into play. And I say that because no matter how good you are internally at dealing with some of these things, the insurers have on staff often, or on call, I should say, substantial breach response services, including technical experts, ransomware negotiators, privacy counsel, et cetera. And I think those are one of the best parts of the cyber policy is getting that kind of expertise because those folks are dealing with these incidences multiple times a day every day. And that's probably undercounting it. And I think no matter how good your team is internally, it's great to have that external support in a crisis. So as part of your incident response planning, you should know what those resources are and and how they might be brought to bear and incorporate them into your plan. And finally, Peter, very briefly, what can we expect to see next from regulators related to insurance and ransomware matters? If I have to be extremely succinct, I would say more regulation. So I think that the main thing we're seeing is we're seeing responsibility being leveled at corporations at the board level. And they're saying, you need to take this seriously. You need to have a plan in place. You need to assess your vulnerabilities and you need to deal with your vulnerabilities. And entities such as the Department of Financial Services in New York have been going after businesses, particularly on the failure to take action against known vulnerabilities. And they've been uh, assessing damages against them and requiring them to, to make payments and to take other actions. What's been even worse in those situations, we've actually seen follow-on derivative suits from shareholders or activist investors going after companies for cybersecurity incidents. And so I, I just think 
we should expect that regulators, number one, are trying to prioritize reducing ransomware and taking action against ransomware. But number two, holding companies accountable for what they do. And also the insurance market. I mean, we're starting to see guidance from various government entities. GAO just just, uh, released a report on cyber insurance. You're seeing increased attention paid to them. And they're scrutinizing whether ransom payments are are helpful or hurtful in this, this ecosystem. So, you know, there's a lot going on on the regulatory level. And I just think it's very important to to monitor and to pay attention to because it can have important financial and other implications for businesses. Thanks, Peter. I've been speaking to attorney Peter Halperin. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.